Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. And this week we're looking at a subject that we didn't realise was quite as big as it actually is. We've done this before, haven't we? we? It seems to be a regular occurrence. Uh, We did it when we looked at the oil industry. So now we're looking at the opposite end of the scale. We're not looking at fossil fuels and non-renewable energy. We're looking at renewable energy. Who knew it was so vast? Absolutely fascinating to do the research. And I have to admit, Heather, I don't know about you, I had to go to sort of children's websites and children's fact sheets to really break it down to the level that I I needed this week. Yeah, I I did something similar. So I started off at Wikipedia just to try and get a definition of what renewable energy actually is. And then I and then similarly, I came across a site that broke down what each of the different types were and and what they actually meant. Yes, because you know we hear these words banded around all the time, but it's actually okay. But what does that actually mean? So, um, so what did you unearth? I don't think we found the same sites, but what did you unearth? So I, I found one called um, ypte.org.uk, and they've got a, a lovely page. They called it a fact sheet, but it was a big long page where they went into the details of each of the different renewables. And some I knew about and some I, I hadn't got a clue or even hadn't considered. Uh, I think perhaps if you'd have really forced me on this, I might have come up with virtually all on the list. But um, it was really useful to actually have it all spelt out. So um, just briefly down the list and we can go in a bit more detail afterwards. Um, this website lists nuclear, biomass, wind power, solar, geothermal, hydroelectric, tidal, wave, biogas and liquid hydrogen. And what was really nice is a a summary on each of those and the pros pros and cons on them. And I'm not going to bore you all now with all the fine detail, but if you're really interested in a lot of really interesting but well-explained details about each of these areas, I would recommend this website. Get over the fact that it's aimed at young people and it's called ypte.org.uk. So which website did you gravitate towards, Heather? Uh, well, I, I I can't remember the site that I found the, this sort of idiot's guide, children's guide, although um, some of the things that they talk about, so, you know, they were talking specifically about biomass and what sort of materials would be included in, in um, biomass. So obviously biomass energy uses natural products like trees and plants to make electricity. So it could be leftover wood from sawmills, corn stalks, corn cobs and seed corn from farms, fast growing crops and trees, etc. Then they, they explain the geothermal, which is about harnessing the heat from under the ground Um, and then they were talking about anaerobic digesters and biofuel now what came to my mind is what these what these different plants might look like because i live near oswestry and i spend quite a lot of time in, in normal circumstances heading over towards whitchurch um in order to get into derbyshire and at whitchurch quite near a dairy farm i believe there is an anaerobic digester and it's the, uh, that's what i believe it to be 
but it it looks really interesting um it, lots of stainless steel and, and chrome and then this big sort of green pile of something that's covered in plastic and i want to and sometimes that's small and sometimes that's big and i don't know if that's the output or the input you know so yeah. actually i'm interested to know what these things look like a wind turbine okay there are different types but we, you know we see them and know so can you help me with that well no i was just thinking we need to go on some field trips clearly yes well yeah why not why wouldn't we yeah so if we anybody guess. out there is working in the renewable energy industry i'll go to any of them i'm interested to know a little bit more but as you said biomass is a really interesting one i didn't know that it, it provide 70% of the UK's renewable energy production. And it, it reached a record 14% share of the UK power mix as of May this year. So wow. biomass is a big thing. Um, it, it's a fancy way, apparently, of saying something which we're all quite used to, which is like burning wood on a campfire. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the reason we're talking about this is because back in November, the government announced that they are going to heavily subsidise onshore renewable energy product, projects um, and that, you know, a lot of people are going to be competing for contracts to do that. Uh, and we know about um, well, we know a bit about the, you know the usual methods, but they're talking about large offshore wind farms. Um, I've seen a few of those off the North Wales coast. I don't know if you have. Yeah, so wind farm is another one that, that fa fascinates me. Um, there are plans to build the world's biggest wind farm off the coast of England. Uh, there are some objections from the Ministry of Defence, however, who uh, think it's impossible to spot low-flying aircraft on their radar when these are in place. But did you know that Britain is the windiest place in Europe? However, mm. it's behind other countries in its use of wind power. But wind power is one of the most popular forms of renewable energy, and uh, um, it onshore wind capacity represents almost 30% of all renewable capacity apparently okay so it's biomass and wind largely right because i remember in the early days uh, going down to cornwall and you would literally see loads and loads of wind farms with yeah. uh, wind turbines and then obviously they started putting them in and it's quite controversial you know for a lot of people yeah. feel and it's that's why um, one of the reasons why they're going to offshore wind farms is because of the controversy of it being a scar on the landscape. But something I was really interested to learn is actually it's beneficial for the power production as well because wind speed is higher over open water. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And then so no. the power is then taken from the offshore wind turbine um, un using an underwater cable. So fascinating yeah a mass a fantastic feat of engineering never mind um the, the way it actually harnesses the energy but with all this investment going into this area um it does rather pose the question that is it is it something that we should be investing in as individuals Can, is there money to be made is there a business to be made out of the renewable en renewable energies market 
Um, and it seems that there kind of is. Yeah. Uh, and it's not it's not just about investing in the organisations that do it. It is perfectly plausible for people on a smaller scale to set up um, with training as experts in renewable energy and then advise businesses and guide businesses through their options and what might be something that would make them a greener organization well which i, I think across an article in forbes which um which was um talking exactly about what you were saying uh, just how good an investment is renewable energy and this was based on some research done by Imperial College London and the International Energy Agency. Now, this is looking at making money from investing directly in the um, in the renewable energy funds in, in um, actual companies in the stock market. But they found that um, these investments deliver massively, massively better returns than fossil fuels in the US, UK and Europe. So and it seems that this is pointing you towards investing in green energy stocks. And they also claim that it's less volatile than fossil fuels. And we talked about that earlier on, didn't we, the, the, uh, it, this year about the fossil fuels market taking a bit of a dive and, and the fossil fuel companies changing direction quite quickly. I saw an art. I found an article in um, on powertechnology.com, which was dated May. Um, but we were, you know, we were into the COVID um, pandemic then, and the international agency has said, said back then that renewable energy would be the only power generation sector expected to grow during COVID. Uh, renewable energy sources are expected to make forty percent of global. energy energy generation which is six percent more than coal of course coal in this country has really started to take a back seat but of course yeah. it's used it's used you know around the world um on a much larger scale so i think it's it's not just about the these islands it's about the the, the wider world and what the impact is financially i think it, yeah. it's a massive market and i i it kind of blows my mind some of the numbers that are talk that they talk about. It's really interesting to read the art article of Forbes right towards the end. It's talking. It's talked all the way through the article about how a great investment it is, but they say that actually investment in renewables remains relatively low, despite the and they, they refer to them as stellar returns here, and right. apparently that's because they reckon that large asset managers institutional investors such as pension funds are, are actually finding it difficult to change they they you know they they don't want to change away from their traditional investment models um so it's interesting now might be a really good time to get into that investment yeah have you come across a site called uh, motley fool Oh, I loved it. Um, I used to use it years ago. I haven't looked recently, but I used to be part of an investment club and we used Motley Fool. Well, they've got an article that they ran um, just at the end of like the 30th of, of November. Um, forget oil shares. I think renewable energy stocks could be millionaire makers. Uh, it makes for interesting reading. And I will um, I'll put a link to that on our website, uh, along with all of the other articles that we've talked about. And of course, that is the business dot community at a moment then when I couldn't remember what 
what our website was. <laughs> the business.community. You're listening to the business community on Calon FM. And in other news this week, we couldn't ignore the fact that the high street is taking a real beating in terms of the Arcadia Group, um, which has fallen into, into administration, putting 1,300 jobs, 13,000 jobs at risk. And of course, the story about Debenhams, where it looks like um, last ditch efforts to rescue that chain have failed. So, um, it, it, yeah, things things aren't looking good for the high street. They haven't done for some time. But just one thing that I think is quite interesting is it started me thinking um, that this is a, this signifies a real change in the way that people buy stuff. Because not only have they moved to online shopping, but it seems that people are more accepting of buying things without the need to see them or feel them or smell them or yeah. try them on. And um, of course, we've got independent shops, you know, and they're struggling hard to 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 provide an offering that that is different to that online offering. But it, it just really got me thinking about what what has changed in our psyche. And, and it, I like to if I'm buying something, I like to feel it. If it's a book, OK, but if it's if it was the blouse or if it was a gift for somebody, I kind of want to see it. Do you feel the same way? And Yes, I, I do. Um, I actually like to see and feel the book as well because I need to look in the pages and see, you know, can I hold it nicely in my hands? It's a big consideration when you've yeah. got small lady hands. Yes. <laughs> I've got baby yeah. hands. Um, but yet certainly clothes. I want to feel the fabric. But needs yeah. must, I think, maybe we were moving towards this anyway. We've talked about the demise or the, the re- um, regeneration of the high street and how that's that's sort of occurring and i think the pandemic's just brought that on a pace really mm, we've had mm. to deal with it and so people have had to change their mindset if they actually wanted to buy these things mm. and it, it would appear that you know for the time being at least that mindset is stuck I don't know if it will revert back or even if people will have the opportunity to revert back because once those shops are gone, the shops mm. are gone, aren't they? Yeah, it is a real blow to so many people at a time of year that should be their busiest time of year. So um, it, it's all over the news, but we couldn't not comment on it. Um, one thing that I did find out because there was some controversy about the uh, pension pot of Arcadia Um Lady Green, Sir Philip Green's wife, is the um, is the named person who owns the organisation, and it is. I saw today that she has um, is bringing forward a fifty million pound payment into the pension fund, uh, which apparently should bring her up to date in the hundred million that she was meant to be putting in. She did two lots of twenty five uh, last year. And this final 50 million was due in September 2021. But apparently she's putting it in now. So um, hopefully that's some good news in that regard. But I, it doesn't change the fact that these are sad times. Yeah. What news have you picked up on, Tracy? Well, some retailers are, are doing well. Uh, Christmas tree sellers are doing very well indeed in an article in business matters magazine according to british christmas tree growers association 
Christmas tree sales um, have gone up. Um, they've sold 24% more trees so far this year than at the same time last year. Some British Christmas tree farms have had their entire crop sold out by mid-November. And it's not sure yet whether people are just going early with the trees or whether they're actually selling more trees. But I was surprised at the figures they talk about. Um, and, and I mentioned these figures to you earlier on, and, and I think you, you too were surprised. The UK produces five and a half million trees, and these take 10 years to grow. And that, that's, you've got to be patient to get your returns on Christmas. Yeah. And it imports another one and a half million from Denmark and Belgium. However, at the moment, a combination of labour shortages and the pandemic has slowed the supply chain. But the figures that surprised us both was the five and a half million and the one and a half million. Is that all the Christmas trees we have in the UK? I'm sure. Because that's kind of like 10% of the population, which, you know, is more than 10% of houses around here. Now, of course, people have artificial, don't they? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, they're doing well. Christmas tree suppliers are doing well this year. Now, market research firm Mintel actually believes that the sales will be the same as last year and just thinking that um, people have gone early. But let's see. I've got my Christmas tree up way earlier than I ordinarily would have. And um, I'm liking the lights. I just want that little bit of brightness in the corner of the room just to make me smile. Yeah, we've got outdoor lights up. And I did say to my husband the other day, I said, well, we'll just get a small tree this year because we have a real one um, because it's a low key Christmas. And he said, oh, I think we should have an even bigger one. Yes. <laughs> so I don't know. Up for it with the size of your tree, <laughs> compensating <laughs> with your tree. Yeah. <laughs> so then we move on to um, Brewdog. Now, Brewdog, we've profiled previously um, but you highlighted an article you saw on LinkedIn from the beginning of this week where the CEO of Brewdog talked about the 10 best decisions that have made a CEO and it highlighted an article um, they had made the week before about the 10 biggest mistakes of Brewdog. Now I'd seen the best decisions blog, I hadn't seen the biggest mistakes article but i think the two together are absolutely fascinating so thank you for pointing those out heather i I, I mean they're they're really interesting and he goes through each of the different things that you know seemed like a good idea at the time and then and then transpired not to be for example the first one he mentions is that they um brought brought out a beer called pink ipa which was for international women's day and um they were trying to highlight the gender pay gap um that um are experienced um through sexual inequality in the workplace and they were selling the beer cheaper to people who identified as women and they would they were donating profits to charities but the whole thing was meant to be a sort of parody on sexist marketing but nobody really realized it was a parody so they just ended up looking like exactly what they were trying to protest against and they got they got backlash around that so this is sort of hold my hands up kind of kind of story 
that that's my favorite one on there actually you know it's not a parody if nobody realizes it's a parody no absolutely well exactly exactly um he talks about climate you know taking time to um focus in on on climate change and you know becoming a greener organization and he and he talks about his team and and then also you know some of the other specific things i think it takes great um self-awareness to not only recognize that these were mistakes but then hold your hand up and publicly declare them as as mistakes i think it's i think it's genius to do that yeah i really think so so for example um one that um i, I think is it was really worth mentioning is the trademark dispute with a bar called lone wolf which is the same name as a brand of gin that they make and he said it was wrong of them to take legal action against the bar. He said there was never going to be any confusion between the bar and our gin. And he says I was completely wrong to take action. I really admire that. You know, it takes it takes courage to admit a mistake, I think. And, that, you know, it's gone up in my estimation by doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're all great. They're all really good. Good. Um, what just one more of the, the the biggest mistakes? He talks about how not to do an acquisition. Um, he said that they um, they don't normally do acquisitions, but they they spotted um, a craft cider business um, that was run by a guy called Simon Wright, and so they bought it. And as he in his own words, he says, and then I ripped the soul out of the brand. Oh, no. The main selling points of Hawk cider was that it was made in London and that the apples were pressed on site. So he said, we spent 18 months making the cider somewhere else. And now they're going back to expanding the cidery in London so that Hawk ciders will once again be made in London from freshly pressed apples. So, you know, it, he, they're interesting stories just to, that we don't often when we profile people, you don't get this level of detail, do you, about what they did and what they didn't do. So pick one of the best decisions, Heather, and I'll pick one as well. Oh, gosh. OK. Um, well. I'm, I'm going to choose number five. Which is, is that the one you were going to go for? No, no, but I hope you're not going to say it. No, I won't. I'll, I will. This will be the um, the radio edit of this story. <laughs> they, um, an employee of the month scheme, which a lot of organisations have. Anyway, um, back in 2016, the packaging manager um, who had been with the organisation since day one um, was really was really annoyed at people saying that 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 Brewdog wasn't punk enough anymore. You know, it all sort of sold its soul down the river. So he decided to print um, a rude slogan on the bottom of a oh, run of 2000. Very rude. <laughs> very rude. Yes. Um, <laughs> there'll be a link to this article. So if you uh, if you do want to read it, then be warned. Uh, but he printed it on the bottom of 2000 cans and um, Tesco's and Sainsbury's uh, weren't very happy. Uh, and all the cans had to be recalled. Sorry? Well, they spot it and uh, did somebody point it out to the buyers at Tesco and Sainsbury's? I don't know. It didn't say, but um, they, <laughs> you could imagine, couldn't you? Um, somebody lifts up their can to drink and there's, you yeah. know, there's the message. But, um, but he says most people would probably have fired that packaging manager, but a brew dog, they made him employee of the month. 
<laughs> uh, it just tickled me. I thought it, I thought it was good. Which one did you? Which slightly do you choose? Less, slightly less controversially, I've just gone for number one, the real living wage, and they actually right. became a real living wage employer in 2014. And uh, he says that uh, investing in the people is core to what they believe in, and they fully believe that their long-term destiny is determined by how well they look after their team. And I think that is quite a commitment. If you're struggling to make a profit, you might consider skimping on the wages. And I admire any company that is committed to paying the real living wage. Our review this week is of a book called The Jelly Effect. Now, I have to say I don't have the book in Kindle form or in a, a hard copy that I can hold with my hand. I left that down to Heather. And what I did was I researched a little bit around it and I'm intrigued. I've watched um, a couple of videos where the author, Andy Bounds, talks about it. Um, and I've read some of the tips on his website. And I have to admit, it would be one of those books that I'm tempted to buy. However, it was actually, um, it, I wasn't going to be able to get it in time. And I thought, you know, what, I'm going to let Heather take the risk on with this one. <laughs> you buy it, and if you really like it, I'll, I'll buy it too. So tell me, Heather, The Jelly Effect by Andy Bounds. Why did you choose it? And what do you think of it? Okay, the reason I chose it is because um, the work that I do is around communication. I'd never come across this book. It's called The Jelly Effect, How to Make commu Your Communication Stick. And I thought, well, maybe that's a book that I should actually have, um, have well, at least researched, if not bought a copy of. So I bought a second-hand copy. Um, and I absolutely love it. Oh, good. Yeah, it's, I think it's brilliant. It's uh, It talks about communication. It talks about how to sell stuff. It uh, talks about how to network. It, it does talk about how to get more business. And it talks about presentations. I haven't really focused on the presentations side of it because because um, I've got some views around presentations anyway. I'm not saying that I disagree with what he's saying, but um, I, I've kind of got a... A, a mindset that is is a mindset of my own and um and it kind of works however um this his story is really really interesting he is he's um he's blind um and his mother is blind well, he's blind in one eye and his mother is blind he lost his sight about the age of eight and he started off right, right he starts the book with as anybody should who am I to tell you how to communicate? And he just shares this little story, which I think is really interesting. He said that as a child, he would sit on his mother's knee and ask her, what's the best way to describe this room to you? How can I, how can I help you understand it instantly? And he said he used to have these conversations with her about everything, people, images, landscapes, films, everything. So he had to learn from a very early age how to explain things in a way that the person he's speaking to can relate to and can identify. And that's the thread that goes all the way through the book. Yes, he does talk about that in a video I found on Vimeo. And he explains exactly that, how his mother was blind and how he learned the art of communication. Actually, 
telling her exactly what she needed to know to understand the situation. And he says he's he's based yeah. his book on that learning. So, and does it carry on along those lines? Do you feel that that is a thread? It's not just a a story that he's come up with and then written a book, and it's that it. No, has, it, no, it's absolutely no, it's absolutely um, absolutely. Um, an intrinsic part of him and the way that he communicates. Uh, he he also draws on other people's work. Um, he he has quotes th throughout the book, and we, you know how much we love quotes. Uh, but he also includes so a way of thinking. He has his sort of systems and processes, but then he he asks you. It's like a workbook as well as it, so it's the methodology. But then think about this. Think about that. Think about what people want, what matters to them, and how how do you how do you reflect on your business and what you're trying to achieve? What type of communication is it that you're actually doing? What do you think you're doing, and what are you actually doing? Um, and then he gives you some guidance on the best way to do it. Uh, and and it it's laid out, yeah, it's laid out beautifully. Um, uh, one thing he mentions, so how to sell, he says. And, and I'd never thought about it like this, but, but it absolutely makes sense. He said, I don't know about you, but I've always hated the word sales. The reason I hate the word is because it's solely to do with us and not the customer. It's us who are selling. So the word itself is from our point of view, not our customer's point of view. They are making purchases. And so simple, but it just makes absolute sense. Related to that, in a video I watched on YouTube, which is about the presentations section. Yeah. And he talks about needing a, a USP, but he says he doesn't like the phrase USP because it says unique selling point. Yes. He said uh, along exactly what you're saying there, you need a unique buying point. Because yeah. you're looking at it from the point of view of why would I buy this and he's not he's saying it's not just a product or a service why would i buy into this idea why would i engage with this presentation i love that you unique buying point it's an excellent yeah. way to think about it yeah and once you start to think about it like that it's very different he also talks about referrals and how um you know getting people to refer you into places and, and what's in it for them as well as what's in it for you and what's in it with the potential purchaser. Um, so he, yeah, he, he takes an idea and he turns it around and makes you look at it from a slightly different angle. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I love it. I think it's a really good book. Um, it's quite old. I think it's, is it 2014? I can't remember. Um, but everything that's in it is relevant now. Where are we? I can't find the title page. Uh, 2007 originally. Oh, okay. Now, have you looked at his tip section on his website? Because that is very up to date. Um, because he's written other books as well since the Jelly Effect. Um, and the one that I picked up was from the twenty fourth of November. I really like this tip. It's an excellent tip, um, and it's it's talking about um, the problem with open questions. Okay. Everyone knows that open questions are better than closed, aren't they? They lead to better, richer answers. But he says that sometimes a question can be too open. And it was like, 
He's right. He gives mm. an example. He recently attended a webinar where the host asked, so what do any of you think about that? And he said nobody replied. It was too open. So he said that the host hadn't been clear about the topic, what they wanted answering. So he reckons that instead of going too open, start with a closed question to get them okay. speaking and then an open question, but that's related to it. So which of these three ideas do you think is the best? Closed question, yeah. the answer, one, two or three. Uh, yeah. Open question, why is that? And then the closed question, what's the best thing about that? And then an open question, why will that be so valuable? So I, I just thought that was a really interesting way to do it because you, you often see, I, even on questionnaires, where you've got that big open box that says, what did you think of that? Oh, I yeah. don't know. It's I don't want to fill in a big white open box. Yeah. So, um, he, he said, start with your closed question. And and then go on to a relevant open question. Love it, very yeah. good. So, yeah. um, get the book by all means. It sounds like um, it, it certainly ticked all the boxes for Heather. Take a yeah. look at his website and have a look at. Also, if you're not sure about the book, have a look at a few of the videos where he talks about the book on Vimeo and on YouTube. But yeah, his website's full of great tips, just like the um, the open questions. Uh, I didn't look at his website, but but even in the book, and I imagine the website is the same. He seems very generous with his knowledge. Yes, it does seem like that. Yeah, that that little gem, though. Some people could have written a whole book about that, couldn't they? Mm, mm. And maybe we'd have got a bit bored halfway through because, yeah, we've got the main point. You know, I need to sum that up in a in a blog post. And mm. very good. So that's the jelly effect. How to Make Your Communications Stick, and it's by Andy Bounds. Our profile this week is of a man that we mentioned briefly last week when we were um, profiling Anne Bowden, who was the founder of Starling Bank, the first wholly online bank. And, um, and we unearthed in our research to her that um, there was a significant invest investor of about 70 million was it sterling or dollars? Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, 70 million pounds. Yeah. And we were like, crikey, well, you know, who's got that sort of money to invest? And so we rooted around a little bit and a gentleman by the name of Harold McPike, Harold spelt H-A-R-A-L-D, his name cropped up. And it turns out that he's um, a billionaire investor and he is quite um, high profile in a lot of the fintech organisations around the world. Um, and he seems to like investing 70 million in lots of different things. It seems to be a number that he he quite likes. He's really, really hard to find out much information about. Don't you find? Did, did you find that, Tracy? I did. Yeah. So I was just um, pondering on the 70 million. Maybe that's what he considers to be small change. Just... Well, if you're a billionaire. Yeah. Yeah. Quite so possibly. I... I, I did a search for the name and I came across him on a website called superyachtfan.com. And so did I. 
You found the same one, yeah. It's We've just had to pause while I went and found the name of that website because I thought it was very funny that it existed. Oh, but yes. No. So, so there are five minutes that I've been waiting for you. You were looking for the website <laughs> I had right in front of me. Oh, sorry about that one. Anyway, <laughs> there's a very nice picture of his yacht, which he actually lives on, I understand. So this, is, this yacht is moored in the bahamas i think and um it's mm -hmm. 50 meters long it has um six cabins for guests which are doubles so it can um can cope with 12 guests in six cabins and a crew of nine in five cabins i know nothing about yachts all i can say is it looks very nice but it's not for me because i haven't got sea legs so even if it's um anchored in a very quiet gentle bay i'm not getting on that yacht <laughs> <laughs> no thank you well he doesn't spend all of his time on his yacht because he's been to the north pole and he's been to the south pole um and he i think you found a story where he's he's he was been aiming his sights a little bit higher than either of the, the two <laughs> poles was it something yeah. about space travel or something well, that's right. In one article um, by Financial, Financial News London, they talk about the adventurer and how his personal life um, shows a taste for adventure. So he's he's climbed all the mountains you can climb. Um, and he's been, as you say, to the North and the South Pole. He said he hiked to the North Pole, but I didn't think he could actually walk to the North Pole. But I'm not, I'm no adventurer. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yet he planned to become the first private citizen to go into space and he even signed a contract to do that and he paid a deposit of seven million dollars to a company called space adventures to secure a seat on a private private flight around the moon or so he thought um the space tourism company uh, was sued by McPike and they reached a settlement. So we don't know how much was settled on this, but essentially McPike claimed that um, it was fraud and a breach of contract. And essentially that they took his money with no intention of ever giving him a seat to travel around the moon. Uh, it's, there is lots of information about this court case in uh, on the internet the washington post has probably got the best article about it and it goes into a lot of detail about the litigation it took two years just to get his deposit back and to settle um but it's really interesting that the the company defending um the the company that he sued were basically saying well it was never really um, never really a guarantee of a ticket you were funding the development of space travel it wasn't quite how he saw it um but yeah so I, i'm fairly certain at some point he's going to find a way to get into space uh, he's got enough money to do it and he's certainly got the the bug for travel and adventure but uh, if you want to know all the detail about the adventures or not quite in space, um, then go to the Washington Post and uh, we'll put a link for that on our website because it, it's absolutely fascinating reading. You know, even just looking at um, you know the different ways that the lawyers can argue either side of, of the case. 
One other thing that I found really interesting is that it is it's almost impossible. There are some photos of him um, either at the North Pole or the South Pole or somewhere on an adventure. It's there are no interviews. He doesn't give interviews. He seems I did see a quote where he said that he's not he's not afraid to admit that he made he made his money playing blackjack. Um, that you know that's where most of his money has come from and then obviously he's invested quite quite um, efficiently uh, there's a website called crunchbase.com which I've never been to before and basically you can go there and it talks about um, how many organizations he's founded what his personal investments are um, how uh, when he's invested um, what type of organization is he lead, is he the lead investor etc etc um, so lots of really interesting information about where his money is um, and how much he's invested. And you know, these these are big numbers, big numbers. That's a lot of blackjack. Yeah. The the guy likes mathematics, and I, I understand that in the 80s, um, he used maths and programming knowledge to help him win at cards. Now, this was done legally. Because the, the, obviously other people weren't using computers to to do this. Obviously, then the the gambling industry catches up on this and and decides that um, it, it becomes illegal. But he made mm. money by being ahead of his time and using the maths and the programming um, things that were available to him at the time. So fair dues. Um, he likes to use um, algorithmic trading strategies, apparently and complex quantitative research methods and the leading edge in technology. I imagine anybody who works in that sector, his name will be well known to them. It's just that it's it's so otherworldly to us that um, that we, we kind of haven't haven't touched that that group of people. But I imagine that, you know, maybe he's kind of the first guy that you phone up if you're looking for some not small investment, big investment, uh, because he, that's clearly, you know, the way that he he rolls. Yeah, I, I was looking briefly into um, one of his um, investments, his own company uh, called Quantres. It's uh, registered in the Cayman Islands. And according to the website, it's got more than 40 staff. But crucially, it doesn't manage any external client money. So presumably, it's all that company is there to manage his portfolio and his money. Wow, that's that's amazing, isn't it? Forty people to manage your money, Heather. Wow, wow. <laughs> Fair play to him. Yeah. Well, another interesting nugget. Apparently, because he's a traveller and has travelled the globe, um, in twenty ten. He funded a, um, a founded a school, sorry, not funded, founded a school, and, which is described as a nomadic boarding school. And it, and it was to enable, um, initially, to enable um, his son to see the world and study at the mm -hmm. same time. Um, but this high school travels around the world, fee-paying students travel the world while studying, and there are about 15 students in each grade and teaches grade 10 to 12, which I don't know what that is, actually, whether that's an American grading system. Um, and apparently 
It's got 60 students and 120 alumni. Fascinating. Yeah, I think, I'm, I'm not sure, I think his ex-wife runs that. Um, he was married for a time. Um, but yes, they set it up. And again, that's quite a thing, isn't it? We want our son to see the world. We want our son to have an education. Let's set up a school. Why not? <laughs> Amazing. So there we go. That's Harold McPike, um, serial investor. Um, and um, yeah, made his money from playing blackjack, apparently. He's seed funding and, and he's invested very well. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.